Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. We're going to be bigger and better this year. Last week's show came to you from um, the Intercontinental Hotel in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And uh, I think flying back on the plane the other day, I got a cold or something. And uh, the last couple of days I've been really sick. And today I'm, I'm full of pills and cough syrup and all sorts of stuff so that I can function. So I apologize for my voice, but um, at least I'm here. The other good thing is we just signed a contract again with the network for another 12 months. So we're in our fourth year just and another one just signed. So you've got me for a little while longer. They're a great group to work for. And, um, and if you haven't listened to all of the other channels, there's some great shit going on at this, at this network. So... Um, you got me for another 12 months, so that's good. I'm really pleased about it. Uh, this this program's all about helping entrepreneurs to be successful. And, uh, you know, I think all the indications are this is just a phenomenal year for, um, for business. Um, everything's looking great. The economy's doing gangbusters and providing something doesn't fall apart in the Middle East. I think um, this is absolutely the right time for any entrepreneur to... Um, Get into business. Uh, we have got another great interview from for you this week. Um, last week we had Ken Cragen, um, who's a guy that created We Are the World and Hands Across America and all of that stuff. We had him on, fortunately, on the thirtieth anniversary of his legendary We Are the World um, project. He's a good friend of mine, and uh, he got phenomenal reviews. We received um, uh, lots of emails saying it's the best interview we've ever done. I got one here from um, Steve Grant in Adelaide, Australia, who said, congratulations, mate, best guest interview ever. I'd love to have a bud with him one day if possible. Well, mate, you get yourself over here and I will make sure that um, you and I and Ken have a bud. That'd be good. I'd like that. Now, the big news of the week, of course, is the traditional retailers have become much more adept at using technology to try and resist um, the onslaught of online commercial sites. And uh, beacons are among the most important new mobile technologies, and they're helping real-world merchants win back sales. These low-cost devices communicate with smartphone apps indoors, you know, through a, um, a Bluetooth connection. And last year saw tons of retailers testing beacons, Macy's, Targets, all of them. And uh, this year, hundreds of big retail chains are turning those devices on and using them to communicate with mainstream consumers in store. It's anticipated that in the near future, there'll be one beacon for every 100 consumers in the United States. And beacons are expected directly influence over $4 billion worth of US retail sales this year. And that number will climb to $40 billion in retail sales in 2016. Jeez, that's good. Half of the beacon-triggered messages sent currently is some form of coupon. You know, mobile coupons are a significant part of this market. And um, mobile coupon app Retail Me Not claims that its offers alone influenced $3.5 billion in retail sales last year. Now, the great thing about beacons is that beacons and loyalty apps can be used together to reward customers for all sorts of location-based actions, even just walking into a store. Brick-and-mortar stores will use mobile payment apps and in-store technology to establish integrated online and offline loyalty programs among their own customers. I mean, the opportunities are just endless. They can collect uh, valuable data on consumers' in-store activity. They could result in highly personalised and targeted offers, which will reinforce the above programs. And once a consumer opens an app in-store, 
The data on their clicks and location can help retailers know everything about them and target them with absolutely perfect offers. So um, I'm working with uh, Hong Kong-based CQS International and their subsidiary uh, C- uh, Kisiguru in Brazil and Argentina. And it's an amazing story, and I'm going to bring it to you next week. I'm interviewing the uh, CEO of the company, uh, William Nebrega, who quite a, quite an extraordinary guy. And uh, the reason, you know, it's a startup company. We're all about applauding entrepreneurs. Well, this is a startup company, and four months ago, um, William Nebrega had nothing, no money, no anything. But vision, passion, and determination. I mean, he was determined by hook or by crook to make this bloody thing work. And now, four months later, he's got a valuation on the company of about $175 million. And he started with zero. So we're going to talk about that next week. And one of the reasons I mentioned that was because um, we will be using iBeacons very extensively to... Um, get consumer information and enable us to make um, targeted offers directly to consumers. Now, if, if you've just joined me, um, I said at the top of the show that I've had this really bad cold or whatever the hell it is. Whatever it is, is driving me bonkers. And I'm full of all sorts of pills and cough medicines and whatever. So one, excuse my voice. And if I go wandering off into pixie land, it's because I've had one too many pills. So don't worry about it. Just put up with it. It'll be a good show anyway. The traditional production companies have been struggling a bit in recent times. We hear about um, movie attendances being down or low. Um, There's been a couple of movies lately that have really done phenomenally well. The Sniper. The Sniper has... It's up around $300 million. It's been a huge success, number one for about four or five weeks in a row. The um, after chat about the, what makes films is, is the word of mouth. If you get great word of mouth, you've got a great film, you'll do well. You get lousy word of mouth, you're dead. Well, it's got amazing word of mouth and it's, um, it's up around the $300 million and that's just in the United States and it ain't stopped yet. It's doing gangbuster business haven't seen it yet but everybody tells me that it is fantastic but what's happened is because there's been a bit of a lull all of the um disruptors you know the apples and the netflix and the googles and the amazons they're all rapidly getting into the production business and now snapchat snapchat has announced it's releasing a new web series on its new snap channel the series called literally can't even I'm not sure what the fuck that means, but that's the name of it. And it'll premiere Saturday. And Snap Channel is part of Snapchat's new feature, Discover, which the company unveiled last week. So Discover allows Snapchat users to view pieces of news in the form of stories, Snapchat, Snapchat stories. And after 24 hours, the stories self-destruct and new content replaces them. Pretty cool idea, really. And it's written by Sasha Spielberg, the daughter of Steven Spielberg. And then, and Emlyn Goldwyn is her partner. And that's the daughter of film producer John Goldwyn. Now, there's a couple of pedigrees for you Spielberg and Goldwyn. Bloody hell. Literally can't even. Stars the friends and writing partners as comedic versions of themselves. Now, young Spielberg, not a bad sort, Sasha Spielberg, is recently single after a long relationship and Goldwyn is embarking on a six-month cleanse. This is all LA-speak, people. (laughs) And the show follows them on a series of misadventures in Los Angeles. Now, new episodes will be added every Saturday, but each episode will self-destruct after 24 hours. Episodes of five minutes or less and often employ a split screen to pack each shot with details from the scene. Sounds like a great idea. Really well targeted for the new media audience. It's very innovative, and I really hope it does well. Now, it's time for a confession. 
I've got to admit that I'm one of those people who criticised Tim Cook. And, you know, I believe that Apple would fail without Steve Jobs. I was a huge Jobs fan. And uh, I thought when he went, Apple was on the skids. Well, I'm here to say I was wrong and very wrong. Now, me being very wrong doesn't happen very often. But this is one of those rare times. As you know, Apple just announced a record-breaking quarter selling 74.5 million iPhones over the holidays. 74.5 million iPhones. I must admit, I've got an iPhone 6 Plus and I love it. My wife's got a Samsung, big screen Samsung, and hates it. (laughs) So, Apple... You've got me. But Tim Cook's pulled off an equally impressive feat since becoming CEO. He's more than doubled Apple's stock price. Now, that's pretty good. You know, you follow a legend like Jobs and you double the stock price and create record sales. That's pretty bloody impressive. Now, um, most people, not only me, doubted that Cook could lead the company well and while it might be a little early to judge the products that they've come up with um, under Cook, the company's stock has soared last April. Apple announced a seven-to-one stock split on its shares, so shareholders got six additional shares for every one they held, and the stock's risen from $53 to 117 Jeez, That's hard to beat, isn't it? Tim Cook, I think a whole bunch of us underestimated you. Investors turned bullish in app on Apple in recent months, mainly because, I guess, of iPhone 6 and 6 Plus. And it seems that their um, optimism was more than justified. Now, here's the big challenge for Cook, the Apple Watch. Now, if Tim Cook can do the same thing for Apple Watch that he's done for the iPhone, Apple will become the first trillion-dollar company ever. Think of that. A trillion-dollar company, a thousand, million, million, million. (laughs) Wow. Oh, and another thing, you know that Apple now has enough cash. It has enough cash to go out and pay cash for the whole of Walmart. It can buy every Walmart in the whole world just with the cash that it's got. How cool is that? Now, we've heard, heard, all heard a hell of a lot about the Internet of Things and how it's going to transform our individual lives and how our cities operate and much, much more. But by this time next year, as a result of security and cost concerns, we may all be very disillusioned by the Internet of Things. <coughs> Excuse my voice. As I explained earlier, I've got a dreadful cold and I'm sipping on all sorts of stuff and taking all sorts of pills. So the rattle you hear is pills. At CES in Las Vegas last month, more than 900 companies showed off their Internet of Things products. 900. Yet nearly 80% of CEOs think that it is irrelevant or far too early. 80% of all CEOs think the Internet of Things is irrelevant or that it's far too early. The technology is just far too expensive. I've got a really good friend, Edson Fondanelli, a great, great guy who's got an IQ of 168, you know, which is more than Einstein. The guy's a genius and he's he's a real technical guy and he is sold on the Internet of Things. I keep getting emails from him telling me how great the Internet of Things are and I've always been an Internet of Things fan, but... The technology is way too expensive. You know, the simple wireless sensors are cheap. The rest of the kit will not be. At the moment, the cost to connect is around $30. And estimates are that to be viable, it needs to be $3. So it's got to go down in price tenfold just to make it viable. Telecom networks also have to change to meet the requirements of billions of these low-power devices that need constant power to send very small amounts of data. 
Now, that certainly isn't going to happen anytime soon. And, of course, the major problem is security. Big firms with reasonably strong security are being hacked day in and day out. So if you can hack into some of these big companies and hack into the Department of Defence and hack into all the government departments that are supposed to be really solid, how are you going to provide security for tens of millions of toasters and kettles and lamps and refrigerators? <laughs> Jeez, that's, that can't be. You know, I'm a hacker. I've just hacked into, hacked into the Defence Department. But no, I'd never be able to hack into somebody's toaster. <laughs> yeah, right. So people are going to um, have a field day. And add to that all the traffic lights. I read an article recently said the easiest thing in the world to hack are traffic lights. <laughs> That's reassuring. Motor vehicles, they're all just computers on wheels. Street lights. Bloody hackers are going to have a field day. At the moment, the simple low-power devices that are likely to be connected to the Internet of Things cannot handle heavy encryption. You cannot put heavy encryption on them and may not be able to be patched and updated every time a flaw is discovered, you know, which with Microsoft's about every 10 seconds. So you're going to have to patch your toaster and your refrigerator and your garage door and your self-opening blinds. <laughs> Lots of luck with that. Now, if, you t if your toaster can't talk to your TV, you know, my TV's sitting around really lonely. It really needs somebody to talk to. But I think the toaster might be boring. And your streetlights are on a different system than your trash bins. The networks aren't going to be very useful. You know, you're going to have to have your toaster talking to your TV, talking to your streetlights, talking to your trash bins. <laughs> You know, if somebody just came down from Mars and they heard us speaking about toasters speaking to trash bins and, and street lights and TVs, they'd think we're fucking nuts. And uh, there's going to be huge privacy concerns that will make Edward Snowden look like a real amateur. Now, just imagine all those 70-year-olds sitting in Washington who don't understand anything who can barely communicate with each other, just imagine them trying to introduce legislation to protect people when hackers can get to you through your toaster. A whole new le high level of tracking and data collection will be possible. Authorities and anyone else will be able to track your every move. The, the legislators aren't going to agree to this easily. And there's no questions that big projects will roll out quickly. You know, General Electric in San Diego is saving 250000 a year by better control of street lamps. Philadelphia reduced trash collection costs by 66% by making their bins smart. But government, federal, state and local, five years behind as per usual. So that's going to be one hell of a debate. So you can expect more smart bins and more smart street lights, but don't expect wholesale implementation of the Internet of Things for quite a while yet. Sorry, Edson. I apologise, mate, but that's the way it is. You're listening to the Bob Bridgehard Radio Show on Voice America Business, coming to you from one of... No, that was last week. I forget where I am. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful... So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer you on air or email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is set out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. So sign up now. The newsletter is coming out this week. I'll be back after the break with my guest, Dan Gregory, who's a behavioral researcher and strategist, as well as an author, educator, international speaker, and social commentator. He is a regular on a great television show in Australia called Gruen Planet, and has worked with some of the biggest brands in the world. He's a great guy, and so don't miss this great interview in just a couple of minutes. This is Bob Pritchard, live from Los Angeles, and I'll be back with my friend, Dan immediately 
after this break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs and people that are involved in disciplines that can assist us to be more effective in business. Being successful in business, particularly as an entrepreneur, is fucking hard. It is really difficult. So people who think outside the box and have something to share with other entrepreneurs that can help us all become more successful, they're gold in this fast-paced technology era. And I've often mentioned on the show that if you don't have mentors... Go out and surround yourself with mentors, people who have done it before, who really know business, and not just friends, but people who stand up to you and say, that stinks, that's wrong, you're doing it the wrong way, you need to do it a different way. You will find that that makes one enormous difference when it comes to being successful. So in these interviews, I try to find out what makes these successful people tick, so that we can learn from their experience and from things that the advice that they give us and the things that they've done that has made them successful. So I want to learn how we can overcome all the challenges that confront us in every startup business. We can all learn from the experience of successful mentors and entrepreneurs. Now Dan Gregory is a behavioral researcher and strategist as well as an author, an educator, international speaker and a social commentator. He specializes in behaviors in belief systems. Now what all that means is that he's bloody smart. He analyzes what drives, motivates and influences us. He's um, a regular on TV. He's worked with some of the biggest brands in the world. Um, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Vodafone, MTV, News Limited and others. And he's a good guy. And he's from the Antipodes, which I, I didn't know, but he's from... Um, He's from Sydney. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thank you very much, Bob. Great to be here. Firstly, I love the name of your book. Now, having having released five books myself, I know that coming up with a great name for a book is damned hard. You sit there and you struggle with all sorts of combinations and all sorts of things to, you know, to become to get a book that re- a name that really sticks, and it's hard. And your new book is titled Selfish, Scared, and Stupid. <laughs> How did you come up with that name? And if it's targeted to me and others like me, why shouldn't I just take offence and punch you in the nose? Oh, look, we can understand that. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't sound particularly like a comment, uh, like a compliment. My uh, no, my co-author Kieran Flanagan <laughs> and I were. Um, we're sitting around, and our one concern was: was would this be a book that people would happily open on the train uh, and be and be seen reading? But I think what what it's really about is, you know, exactly what you said. Let's deal with the truth about human behaviour. Let's deal with realities rather than we weigh we'd like people to be, or, or, or that we'd like ourselves to be. 
In other words, by better understanding what's really driving us, what's really driving our customers, what's driving our staff, you know, we can actually create real engagement programs and actually, you know, change the way um, we interact with people and lift people's performance. Do you... So it's a matter of you understanding, the, say, staff members, for example. Um, there are always people that um, you can't get along with, you don't know how to communicate with, and, you know, as a sort of... NLP devotee, what you do is you sort of put them in the little box and then you try to, you know, frame your behaviour and the way you word things so that you don't upset them and, and say things in a way that encourages them. Is that where you're coming from? Is that... Well, that's, that's part of it. But the other thing that we, we tend to do is we, trend, we tend to try and force people to fit particular behaviours that we'd like, as opposed to, well, hang on, let's have a look at our systems and our processes. And let's design them so that they work with human nature. So rather than expecting people to change, let's actually have a look at the truth of their natures and align with them. Because we're all, we, you know, the truth is we're all, uh, you know, selfish, scared and stupid in, in some regard. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't be capable. It doesn't mean that we can't be talented or, or even brilliant at times. But, but we're not that way all of the time. And so we actually need to, to build our business strategies such that, you know, our people can deliver the results that we need them to and that we can deliver the personal results that we want to achieve, even when we're not having our best day. So is it good for a company to have a, a, such a diversity? You know, I'm one of those people who believes that the only way to change people is to change people. You know, if, some, if, some, if, you've, if you've got a personality that clashes or whatever, then the best way to do something about that is just fire them and get somebody else. Um do, do you not suggest? Do you suggest that's not a good idea? Well, I think that you know that's that's one plan. But the problem is, as soon as you you try to take that to scale, you run into problems. Because if you think about it, fifty percent of ev- of any industry you talk about is going to be below average competence. That's just that's just simple math. Yeah, fifty percent of people are going to be below average. So if you assume that, the bigger your organisation becomes, the bigger you grow. You know, the more you're going to be pulling from that. You know, the breadth of that that people pull. And you're not always going to get the cream of the crop. No one has, you know, a monopoly on, on, on the cream of the crop. So what I'm suggesting is, you know, rather than, than actually expecting people to, to adapt or to lift their game or thinking that we can control people 100% of the time, let's engineer our systems such that they can produce the results that we want or, or let's, let's create systems that bias towards high performance rather than just leaving it all to the people factor. But if the people aren't, you know, if you if you're if a certain percentage of your um, staff are from the bottom of the gene pool, <laughs> how, how do you set, how do you set up systems that um, um, force them to be exceptional or even competent? Look, I think that's a that's a really good question, and that's really you know the central premise of the book. Um, if, so, if you think about the way we do things like um, you know uh, airplane. Um, safety. Yep. You know, we make the, the graphics on, on that on that air safety card incredibly simple so that anyone can understand it. We drill it into the people at the beginning of every flight. So when when it's crucial that people understand what, what we need them to do, we dumb it down, we make it simple, we make it easy for people to, to comply. And that's what we're, we're, we're looking to do is rather than, than make, expecting people to leap over hurdles, let's make it easy for them to deliver the results that they want. So an example of that was a hospital that had an issue with um, their, their medical staff washing their hands. Um, and it didn't matter, you know, the fact that these were incredibly intelligent, well-educated, competent medical practitioners. They knew that they should wash their hands. They were just busy or they were absent-minded or they had other things going on in their heads. So they weren't washing their hands as, as regularly as they needed to. And they tried putting signs up in the, in, the, in the restroom saying, you know, please wash your hands before you go back to work. And it didn't seem to make that much of a difference. What they ended up doing was they put one of those um, waterless hand wash dispensers yep. on the door. So you had to press against it just to get out of the restroom. Yep. And all of a sudden, people had to wash their hands. So instead of trying to change people's behavior, they put that behavior that they wanted in literally in the path of their people. So it was hard for them to fail. And that's what we're looking to do. How do we make failure more difficult? as opposed to just making success more easy. Okay. Um, so how does being selfish, scared and stupid, which, which are the three things that don't go with a normal company culture, right? You, 
you know, nobody sits there and says, um, I'm going to write, I'll write, um, let's memorialise the company culture. What we need is people who are selfish, scared and stupid. Um, so nobody puts that in their corporate culture. So how, how does that positively influence um, very difficult disciplines like leadership and, and selling? They're both difficult disciplines. How, how, do, how does that Absolutely. positively affect it? Yeah, I mean, if you think about leadership and, and, and sales, for instance, that, you know, that, that's critical to understand human behavior. You've got to engage people. You've got to, to, to bring them along the, the journey that you want them to, to, to follow. Right. And, and what we're saying is, look, our, our survival brain still calls dibs on most of our decision-making. You know, our survival brain is fundamentally selfish, scared, and stupid, and that's actually been a great thing. You know, that's why we survived as a species. You know, our capacity to look out for number one. Our, our ability to mitigate the risks that we were exposed to. And we, you know, having a bias towards the simplest and easiest solution is actually a good thing. It's a recipe for success. It's just that it doesn't sound particularly good. But if you're thinking about, you know, how do I engage my staff or, or how do I, I better engage my customers in a sales conversation, it's exactly the same process. If you think, it, and it's not about being selfish, scared and stupid, it's about thinking selfish, scared and stupid. So by thinking selfish, I think, well, what's in it for my customer? And instead of talking about what's in it for me, frame things in terms of what's in it for them. Because most, most of the times in a sales conversation, people spend all their time talking about their product or their service. Couldn't agree more. how good they are. And, how, and, and really, the sale is almost always in the prospect more than the product. Absolutely. You know, and, then, and then if you think, well, well, there's a fear in any sale. You know, it's, oh, is it, going to be, is it going to be a product delivered for me? Is it going to be too expensive? Is this going to live up to my expectations? So there's obviously fear in that conversation. It's about, well, how do you tilt that fear? How do you move from the fear of taking action to the fear of not taking action? And then in terms of thinking stupid, well, that's about how do I make the sale easy? How do I make the sale simple? How do I, you know, reduce the friction in, in the transaction? I'll give you an example of that. I am... Um, I'm a motorcyclist, not a car driver, and I recently bought myself a, a new Harley Davidson, and I built this fantastic rapport with the with the saleswoman in uh, at the Harley store. You know, she was another Harley rider. She loved bikes. It was it was fantastic, and we had. And a you're a flirt. Rapport. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that she was you know a halfway good looking woman was was no bad thing. But the other thing that was really uh, was really interesting in this conversation was at the moment that the you know what what my business partner Karen and I like to call the break point of the sale, you know when the contract was being signed, when the money was being transferred. Yeah. She took me into another room and introduced me to this guy in a suit and a tie. I mean, he looked nothing like a Harley guy. Yeah. And it and all of a sudden it was okay. He's going to take the money. He's the one that's going to sign the contract. And, you know, that was the point at which the sale could have fallen over because they built friction into the sale, friction that was unnecessary as opposed to making it easy. And that's what we're looking at in, in terms of whether it be leadership, whether it be trying to um, motivate yourself or, or even just to increase your capacity as a salesperson. How do you come from what's in it, with, in it for the person that you're trying to engage? How do you mitigate the risk? How do you flip the fear from, from action to inaction? And then how do you make it easy and simple for me to buy or to follow or, or just to buy into what you're doing? Yeah, agree with, I couldn't agree with that more. I agree absolutely and totally. Okay, I'll agree that um, selfish and scared, which you, you just covered, that makes sense, perfect sense, logical. I think everybody that's in leadership or selling can relate to that. But... I think in today's technology world and today's complicated world that we ne really need to... One of the problems with, with selling uh, is that most salespeople don't put enough planning into um, how they're going to handle the sale when they get in the room. You know, um, Abraham Lincoln had a saying that said, um, if I had eight hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend six hours sharpening the axe. And I think one of the problems with most um, salespeople um, and a lot of business leaders is that they don't spend the six hours sharpening the axe before they go into the meeting. So with your selfish, scared and stupid, how does thinking stupid ha help us perform better? 
Well, it, it, it's funny. I actually think that's that's one of the um, the functions of thinking stupid because thinking stupid isn't about being stupid. It's about understanding that people will bias towards the simplest and easiest solution. So all that planning that goes into the sales conversation is actually about making the sale easier for people. You know, how do you make it, you know, simple for them to engage? You know, and and things like technology have made that even more important and have actually helped make that easy. If I if I walk into a sales conversation and I no longer have to say, well, that's fantastic. You know, you've bought into the product. I'll get my my um, staff to send over a contract for you to sign later on today. Bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. If I can instead hand them an iPad, they can sign with their finger, and the deal is done. Yep. I've made it simple. I've made it easy. I've removed the friction. I've I've made it hard not to do what I want them to do. And that's what we're talking about. Is is how do we remove the difficulty for the other person? It doesn't mean that we act stupid. It's that we assume that they will bias towards the simplest and easiest option. Yeah, okay. Um, you talk about planning for failure. Um, you know, I'm one of those people who gets up in the morning and goes, wow, what can I do today? Where can, where can I bite off more than I can chew and chew like hell and really succeed? And my, my whole nature is, is positive and up and, you know, I get high just on fresh air. So, how does and everything I do is positive you know I never sort of think about failure or any negatives so and you say the planning for failure is critical isn't that just a way of being negative yeah it's you know a lot of people do think of it that way but I think it's actually about again it's about sharpening the axe for six hours you know to cut down the tree in eight it's You're going to use that from now on in your speeches, I, aren't you? I will be using that a lot. <laughs> it's, a gra- it's, a, it's, it's a great it's quote. It's a fantastic quote. Well, and I think it's really relevant. You know, it, it is. It, Absolutely, it, 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 I agree. And I think it's, it's, you know, planning for failure is about understanding that failure will happen. You know, almost any successful person will tell you that success is on the other side of a number of failures or a yes. number of setbacks. Yes. And, you know, this, this idea that, that um, you know, you know, failure isn't fatal, nor is it, um, nor is it permanent. You know, which is a which is a um, Winston Churchill quote. Yeah, is a really good way of thinking about failure. And if our capacity to plan for what might go wrong actually allows us to generate success. So an example of that is again going back to the to the uh, to the industry of flying. The aeronautical engineering industry has for decades been designing aircraft that can stay in the air, that can land safely, even if fifty percent of the engines go out and it's interesting that we do that when we're at 30,000 feet but we thank don't god for that <laughs> but think about it what would happen to most businesses if 50 percent of their staff or 50 percent of their customers stalled halfway through the year yeah now for, for most organizations that'd be catastrophic because people haven't planned and don't have contingencies uh in place for for when failure does happen and it will happen yeah no i agree I mean, it, it's funny, Kieran and I were in uh, in Los Angeles um, last week and we went to watch um, the Waterworld show at Universal right. Studios. Yeah. And we, we sat and we were talking to, to the crew and the actors that, that performed the show after the show was done. And essentially what they told us was for every scene, for every special effect, for every explosion or stunt that they performed, they had an alternate yeah. Uh, alternate ending prepared just in case something goes wrong. And, right. and what was interesting was it seemed like a seamless performance to us, but apparently three completely different things had gone wrong during that performance and they just adjusted. Didn't pick up and on that's, it. Yep. That's what yep. we need to do in our businesses too. We need to assume that stuff will happen that we can't predict, that we, we, can't, uh, we, we can't possibly have control over. Yep. But what do we do in that situation? So that's so what you have a fallback position. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, that 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 reminds me of an old. I don't know how true it is, but something about the U.S. Post Office. If they if they fail just one tenth of one percent, something like nine million letters don't get delivered every day. <laughs> Which is not ideal, right? No, it's well. I don't know. The last I, I, I venture to say the last hundred letters that I've got in the mailbox have all been bills. So I don't care if they lose fucking nine million of them. I couldn't care less. In fact, I'm all for losing as many as possible. See, for me, it's my Amazon delivery, so I'm quite happy for them to arrive on time. Yeah, well, it's interesting that, you know, I I get... um, 
I get my payments paid directly into the bank through um, bank transfers and things, but um, uh, people who send me bills tend to send them in the mail. Um, you suggest that... But another thing that I find interesting is that... Um, you know, I'm not the least bit lazy and I don't know anybody who's successful in business that is lazy and yet you suggest that being lazy can be an asset. I know you can justify just about anything because you're good at it, but how do you justify that one? <laughs> well, you know what, I think you know, this idea of having, again, it's having a lazy mindset rather than being completely lazy because you know, no one, someone who's just a complete sloth at work and just rides everyone else's coattails. That's, that's clearly not productive, but having a lazy mindset can actually be quite useful. You know, when we came out of the Industrial Revolution at the turn of last century, you know, being a hard, diligent worker was a good thing. You know, we wanted people right. who could put their, their noses to the grindstone, who never questioned, who just did the work and yes. got the job done. But, you know, as we've come through this digital and information technology revolution, the kind of work we're doing is different. And we, you know, we, we actually need more more creative thinkers in the way we work. We need more creative workers. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, someone who's got a lazy mindset is more likely to look for a shortcut, or is more likely to look for an easy way of doing something, or a less labour-intensive way of doing something. So, in other words, having a lazy mindset can actually be useful in terms of innovation, in terms of generating solutions to problems, and, uh, and ways of doing things that we haven't seen before. So that's what we mean is, and, and oftentimes we, we end up with, with diligent employees who are really hardworking, but because they're hardworking and diligent, they never stop to think, well, hang on, is this the best way of doing things? They just, you know, apply their, you know, their effort to what they've been told to do. So yep. actually having a, a bit of a lazy mindset and, and a questioning mindset, a, a mindset that says, hang on, is this the easiest way to do this? Or is there a simpler way? Is actually a really good thing. And oftentimes, those are the people who make good leaders within an organisation. Hmm. Okay. Design beats discipline. What does that really? What does that look like in the real world? I mean, you know, you got a business, so design beats discipline. Yeah. What does it? What does it look like? Well, again, it's about thinking. How do I, you know, generate systems and processes? such that, you know, it's easy for my people to deliver the results that I want. It's easy for my customers to engage with me the way that I'd like them to. And let, let me give you a personal example about this. You know, we've just, um, you know, uh, you know, Kira and I sat down and we did our business goals for the year. And, yep. uh, and we were talking about what our goals were for, for last year and doing a review and seeing, you know, doing, you know, did we live up to what we said we'd do? And one of the things that I... Um, sort of set out to do last year was to spend more time at home. You know, I'm your typical type A personality. You know, you, you know we travel around the world all the time, so I don't spend a, a great deal of time at home. So when I am, uh, you know, at home, I, I like to spend some time at home. Yep. And what we did was we sat down and, and it didn't seem to matter how disciplined I was about closing the laptop up and going, getting on the road and heading home. It didn't seem to matter how motivated I was to get home. It just didn't seem to generate the results that we wanted. So we sat down and we did the math on it. And what we found was, I've got an hour's commute to the office from home and an hour's commute um, back home from work, mm. which is two hours a day, 10 hours a week, roughly one long day every week, times 52 weeks, factory in weekends. That's essentially two whole months that I'm not at home just in the travel that I do. Yeah. Now, Discipline isn't going to solve that problem. You know, motivation can't solve that problem. It's actually a design flaw. If all I did was move the office half an hour closer to where I live, or, or, or else move where I live half an hour closer to work, I instantly get an extra month at home every year, a whole month. No more discipline, no more motivation required. So that's what we're looking to do is to actually say, hang on, is it a motivation and, and discipline issue? Or is it that we've got a design flaw in our business and in our structures and the way we do things. Because if we can solve it with design, it means that it can be solved um, ongoingly, no matter who's involved in the process. Um, and it actually ends up solving the problem in a much bigger way. And ultimately, it builds more value into your business. You know, if you're building a business, if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking to sell it, you yep. want the value of your business to be in your processes, in your intellectual property, not just in your people, because your people can always leave. Absolutely. And what the value of a business is your IP. Agree. Agree. Um, so, 
you obviously a bit like me, travel a hell of a lot. Um, how do you balance your work life and your fun life? I mean, when you when you finally fall off the perch, you want to be able to say, "Geez, I had a hell of a lot of fun in my life." How do you balance you know, that? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I'm the expert to answer that one. Bob. Yeah, I'm um, not either. <laughs> work life balance, I don't think, is anything I've been particularly good at. I'm. Um, I'm quite famous for only really having a holiday every ten years. Oh, really? Um, but you know, I think I think I've been lucky in that I've, you know, I've spent you know a good twenty five years doing work that I enjoyed, doing work that I was passionate about, working with people that whose company I enjoyed and you know whose whose lives I cared about, and and so I actually consider myself quite lucky. I'm not someone who ever feels a need to take a break from from you know my my regular life and see that sounds to me like you've convinced yourself that sounds to me like the (laughs) ultimate rationalization look i haven't had any fun but i i I haven't i haven't been able to really enjoy my life but geez i've worked with a lot of people i like but you know what i I actually think it's about rather than looking for work-life balance which i think is really difficult and i don't think anyone you know achieves that perfectly i think i'd rather have work-life congruence so that my work life fits with my personal and family life fits with yeah. my my fun and you know I you know we were talking you know earlier today that you know I spent three or four years traveling the world working as a stand-up comedian yeah you know I had a really successful career in advertising for 20 years right. you know I, I I spend you know my life you know researching and studying and building strategies around human behavior right. helping people be more effective leaders and 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 have a greater impact in the world so I mean, you know, it's not boring work. It's 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 captivating and interesting, and and um, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm you know, not everyone gets to live that. A lot of people spend most of their waking hours doing work that they don't particularly enjoy, and yeah. you know, that's not the life well, I chose. And I'm lucky. I love working, and I've had a fantastic career, and it's been been sensational. But I must admit that um, you know, a month in Tuscany. When renting a little house, walking up in the morning and getting your um, your baguette and a cup of coffee, that's really enjoyable. I mean, that's really just you know taking time to look at the sky and smell the roses and do whatever. It's interesting. And Melissa Meyer, um, who we all know, um, said that she believes in work life balance, but the problem is that you do fifteen years of work at the start and you get the fifteen years of balance at the end. <laughs> and, <laughs> Look, and I, I think, think that, that might be that, pretty close to true. Might be pretty close to correct. Okay, we're we're getting close to running out of time. But who's the business person that you most admire? Wow, that's a really good question. You know, there's there's so many people that I, I you know I've um, admired over the years, and I've had a, I've been lucky in that I've had some some really good business mentors along the way. I was very. Um, you know, very particularly when I decided to, you know, begin my career working, you know, in the in the creative side and the strategic side of advertising. And, right. you know, it was, you know, I just, I graduated from university in the, um, at the very, very beginning of the 90s, and it was during the, you know, this big global recession. Yep. And um, jobs were incredibly hard to come by. And I just did whatever work I could do to pay the bills. You know, I worked as a labourer. I worked, you know, doing whatever I could, I could, whatever work I could find, I did. And by that stage, I decided that I was going to be, rather than just taking any job in my chosen career, there were two particular people in, in the industry that I wanted to work with. Um, and it was a guy named George Betzis and another guy named Simon Reynolds. And um, Simon, you might know, is the author of... Um, I know Simon... I know Simon extremely well. He just lives up in West Hollywood, which is not that far away. See him from time to time. Um, I did, actually did a speaking tour with Simon. We did forty-six cities, um, uh, forty-six cities in forty-six days. So, um, well, they, yeah, they, I know Simon go. very well. So, I mean, they were the um, you know they were the only two um, advertising executives that I've ever worked for as an employee. Right, and um, you know, I chose to work with them, and again, they were more from the the entrepreneurial side of business rather than the big corporate world. Sure, and Absolutely. they had the skills that I wanted to learn. So I, you know, it was I was very particular about who I 
wanted to spend my time with. And I never took a job just to earn a pay packet. I was, you know, I chose business people that I wanted to associate with as much for what they could teach me as what they could pay me. And I think that that's critical in, in if you want to be a successful business person, is associate with people who have, um, you know, a level of intelligence uh, in the area that you want to build your intelligence. Absolutely. I think that's really important. You, you are who you mix with. If you, um, if you sit down and sit down on the couch, eat chips, drink Coca-Cola and watch Oprah, you're going to look like Oprah. <laughs> that's going to get me a long way but you know what I mean Dan Gregory <laughs> thank you very much for speaking with me from New York this evening I really appreciate it this is the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business now if you'd like to know more about Dan go to theimpossibleinstitute.com forward slash Dan hyphen Gregory forward slash so that's theimpossibleinstitute.com forward slash Dan hyphen Gregory forward slash and you'll get him so you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network and I'll be back with you with our email segment of the show after this short break Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com now back to the show welcome back Pritchard Straight Talking absolutely no bullshit business show for 2015 coming to you this week from my hometown of Los Angeles for those of you who mightn't have heard the first half I do have a bad cold and I'm full of pills and I've been told several times that I sound dreadful so don't bother telling me it's bad enough that I know it without somebody telling me that I sound awful anyway normally this is a segment of the show where we bring you emails from our listeners however since last Sunday was the Super Bowl with advertisements at $4.5 million for 30 seconds, I thought I'd give you my five best and worst ads. Many of you listen to the show from outside the United States, so I hope I can convey the colour and tone of some of these ads to you. Wow, what a Super Bowl it was. You know, quite often Super Bowls are mismatched and, you know, it's not a great game, but, boy, it was a fantastic game. After that, sensational juggling catch by Jermaine Kersey. I thought the game was all over and that the Seahawks Seahawks were home and hosed. But for some extraordinary reason, Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson had to make what was no doubt the dumbest mistake of all time and lost the Super Bowl just one yard out from a touchdown. God. But what an interception by the undrafted rookie, Malcolm Butler, I mean, he saw the play coming from about 10 yards away and was there to win what should have been an unwinnable game. You know, Malcolm struggled and persevered and even worked at Popeye Chicken so that he could play football. And now he's got a Super Bowl ring. How cool is that? And MVP Tom Brady, who's got to be the greatest quarterback of all time, won the... um, red truck, I think it was a Chevy, but I'm not sure, as the MVP, and he gave it to Malcolm Butler. How cool is that? Got on you, Tom. So this this program's all about supporting the underdog. Anyone who, despite being down, just keeps getting up. So Malcolm Butler, you're our Bob Pritchard Superstar of the Week. You were sensational, mate. Just brilliant. Now, normally the best part of the Super Bowl is the ads, but this year, because it was such a fantastic game, Katy Perry, Lenny Kravitz and Missy Elliott were also great. The ads took a bit of a back seat. 
And uh, so I thought I'd tell you what worked and what didn't. So here are my best and worst ads of the Super Bowl 49. You know, some of the ads were touching. Some of were were hilarious. Others were just bloody awful. Now, at number five, best ads, Loctite. I had never heard of Loctite before. But when people dancing around in fanny packs, they really put Loctite on the map. Thanks to that unforgettable ad, people are now talking about Loctite. So that was $4.5 million well spent, I reckon. At number four, Snickers spoofed the Brady Bunch with action star Danny Trio as and Marcia and Boardwalk Empire actor Steve, I'm not, Beskimi as Jan. It got a lot of laughs, very well covered on social media. That was pretty good. My third favourite spot was BMW's spot with the 1994 clip with Katie Couric and Brian Gumble when Gumble asked, what is the internet anyway? You know, bearing in mind this was 20 years ago. Do you write to it like mail? Gumble asked. Now, the newfangled idea then fast-forwards to 2015 when the presenters struggle to grasp the concepts of BMW's electric i3 vehicle, which, of course, is all computerised. So that was, that was a really cool ad, I thought. I really liked that. Chevy Colorado ad. Well, that scared the shit out of me. I'm watching the game. Uh, I've got to set the stage. Earlier in the day, um, the power went out at our, our place, the whole block went out, and we had no power. So at about midday, we're sitting there saying, geez, I have to get the power on because, um, I want, you know, we had people coming around to watch the Super Bowl. So we're panicking that we're not going to have any power. And then Chevy comes on, and they're panning around the Phoenix Stadium, and then it very convincingly cut out. So we sat there and thought, oh, not again. Jesus, uh, we're going to miss the Super Bowl. We were certain that was the end of us watching the game. Very well done, Chevrolet. I've got to pay it. It was great. And the best ad, particularly after the Big Daddy fake puppy mill ad, was Budweiser's lost puppy ad. It really pulled at the heartstrings. I tell you what, Budweiser have certainly made some mileage out of those, um, out of those horses, haven't they? Those Clydesdales are just bloody fantastic. So that was a good ad. So if you haven't seen it, just as the puppy finds itself lost and is about to be savaged by, I'm not sure whether they were wolves or coyotes, it was heroically saved by Clydesdale horses. That was a real tearjerker. I think that was fantastic. And I also think it's about the fourth year in a row that Bud's come up with the best ad. Okay, I'm talking fast because I'm running out of time. <coughs> Excuse me. My fifth worst Super Bowl ad was Victoria's Secret. Now, I love Victoria's Secret ads and their catalogues. I like them just as much as the next guy. But when you're paying $4.5 million for a spot, you expect to get something a bit more sensational, and it just didn't happen. The fourth worst Super Bowl ad was GoDaddy's replacement commercial. Like, who cares? And then... um, Budweiser had one of the best ads. It also had one of the worst when they attacked craft beer and offended every craft beer drinker in America. And the second worst ad was Kim Kardashian, an ad for T-Mobile Super Bowl. I just don't get it. I mean, she's famous for just being famous, but Kardashian just said, you know, every, every month all this time's being taken back by T-Mobile. It could be used to see her make up her tennis backhand, her outfits, her vacations and her outfits. I mean, again, who cares? And then the worst ad was Nationwide's ads about accidents that killed children. Hated it. Okay, send in your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and become a contact of mine on LinkedIn. We're confident this is going to be a fantastic year for everyone in business. And it's the perfect time to commence your entrepreneurial endeavours. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, it's much easier to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. And we've got a great interview with a great entrepreneur for you next week. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a wonderful week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life. We'll be right back. 